Welcome to the Woodstock Public Library's podcast, sponsored by Friends of the Woodstock Public Library. I am Stephanie. And I am Bailey. And today we are here with Mark Greenleaf. Are you ready, Mark? Fire away. All right. I have some questions for you. Okay. How long have you worked at the Opera House? I believe now it is 31 years. Do you have a favorite story from working there? I think... If, if you're asking for favorite, then I'm going to give you some things that are more lighthearted. <laughs> um, maybe not of the same, you know, historic uh, import as some others. But one would one would be, since you were just speaking about Groundhog Day, the day that Harold Ramos and his uh, his team and his location manager and the representative from the Illinois Film Office mm-hmm. uh, came by to try to make their final decision on where to film. Groundhog Day. And I like to think that decision was ultimately made specifically because they visited the Opera House and John Sherris took them up so they could see the square from the tower and I waited in the balcony and as I heard the feet shuffling back down the stairs, I heard Harold Ramis say, I like it, make it happen. So I love that story. And then probably the other thing on my short list of very, very favorite events would be in 2000, what was it, 2005, when then Senator Obama, United States Senator Obama, did a town hall meeting I was uh, there at for the that. Opera House. Yeah. And that was, well, it was very well received. We were packed to the rafters, and I loved it because it was not only historic in and of itself, but it was arranged by the county Democrats, as I understand. Uh, the, the panel that we had on the stage was our Republican state's attorney, our Republican state senator, our Democratic state rep, our Democratic member of the House, and Senator Obama. And it's exactly the kind of thing that the place was built for originally and I wish we did more of that but that was a terrific thing too because it was a wonderful civic event. So what interests you about Woodstock history or just history in general? I don't know know, I've always had an interest in history I've always had an interest in history Um, maybe I got it from my parents and grandparents it's generally prudent to suggest that anything good you know you got from your parents and your grandparents (laughs) Uh, and I try to practice that I was always fascinated by my dad's life story and and his military service in the Second World War and the stories of my grandparents uh, on my mother's side who emigrated from Sweden and on my father's side while if you go up the paternal side that you go all the way back to 1635 Um, but on my dad's mother's side in the 19th century her folks emigrated from Germany and so I was always hearing about family history and while I did not intend in my great you know inspired life plan to be anything but a world famous actor cum director cum auteur in in the American theater and film and you know, however lucky I might have gotten. I ended up here at the Woodstock Opera House in in the production side of things and also taking care of the building. And uh, it's been been a wonderful ride. Over 30 years, I realized I didn't really have the fire in my belly that one should have to endure, you know, months of ketchup soup until you get lucky to get get a break. It really wasn't in me, and so it's probably better that I didn't make myself miserable thereby. So I have been a civil servant for three decades and a very, very happy employee of the city of Woodstock. I've been able to raise a wonderful family of five children with this employment 
and absolutely fell in love with the building and wouldn't have it any other way. So what brought me here, uh, I was between jobs, and I had a, uh, a call out of the blue from an acquaintance from college who said, uh, there's a job posting that you know you ought to look at I found he found it in I think it was art search and I was really amazed it was a very brief conversation I thanked him very much I hadn't heard from him in years I don't know why he called me we weren't that close and I've never heard from him since (laughs) and I almost suspect that it really wasn't he at all that it was an angel or somebody just sending me here been here ever since that's a little strange bit of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Strange, yeah, I yeah. agree. Very strange. Still haven't heard from him. So we're going to talk about cannons in general. Okay. Yes. Cannons in general, <laughs> and then we'll go into the big show. Okay. <laughs> what are some of the examples of other cannons that the city has owned, in your brief knowledge? Cannon that I am aware of. Um, we've all seen, um, I mean, the three of us have all seen the, the photograph of the crowd around the downtown Civil War monument somewhere around 1909-1910. The monument was erected in 1909. The cannon that were placed around it, I, I don't have a firm idea in my head of when that you know, landscaping and additional decoration happened, but we certainly see in that picture a number of Civil War veterans and their families and you know kids on and around and on climbing on the cannons, and, and there were, I believe, four around the corners on pedestals. And I believe those were naval guns, and they were there quite some time. And while I don't understand exactly when they were placed there, I have been told more than once that they were there until they were given up as part of a scrap drive during World War II. So they were melted down into who knows what. And then we have the, uh, the replica of a, a mountain howitzer, of you know civil the Civil War era, which was placed in gosh I'm not sure when now but uh, by Jim Clegg, uh, he was the he was the the main mover and shaker on that and while it is a replica it is still a, a very you know interesting and educational field piece. And what year was that put up? Do you remember? Do you have an idea? Well, I know that he had the he had the names of all the Civil War fallen. Mm-hmm. I believe in two thousand and two, he and and the Zoyas and, oh, and so that supporters was pretty recent did then. that. And then I think it was after that, maybe two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that. Um, he had the the mountain howitzer installed as a you know as an educational thing, and it was there for a while. And then the city council decided that. They didn't want to have weapons in the park anymore, and it was moved over to its location on Lake Street now by the by the police station. So that is, you know, not a, not you know not a real real gun, but that would be another I think we could put on the list. And then the cannon that you and I have spoken about before, which I see now, uh, was uh, in 1860 dubbed uh, the Lincoln Wooa. <laughs> Uh, the Woodstock Sentinel. I don't know anything about the origin of that piece. Uh, obviously, it predates the Civil War, but I suspect from what we hear about it in different different sad tales, I'm sure that it was a muzzle-loading field piece similar to the, the Little Mountain Howitzer, and, and that would explain, I think, why some of the terrible things that happened from time to time when it was used happened the, the way they did. So. Well, me and Bailey, we were 
searching for a story to talk about mm -hmm. in our podcast. And we were reading through the unfortunate event mm -hmm. <laughs> when we saw Canon and we're like, oh, that's horrible. And then we turned the next page and there it was again. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we were referring to it for a long time as the infamous Woodstock Canon. Yes. Since it was pretty, you know, did a lot of collateral damage on human lives in its time in this little town. Well, and again, yeah. it, it was hard for us to figure out. We, ha we have theories mm -hmm. on the canon's origin. Mm -hmm. And then I had Martha Hansen cornered in her office. Um, <laughs> Good for you. And, and what did you get? Uh, we got um, the Black Hawk War right. um, that people were writing in. She has, she's never given it to me, so I, I believe her. Mm -hmm. That there were letters written. Yeah, I know. Believe. No, it's good to believe. It's good. I believe Be in Martha. When in doubt, believe Martha. Believe, <laughs> believe Martha. That they were writing letters to the government asking for support because of the attacks hmm. that were happening out here. So there was replies sent back that they had sent cannons. Interesting. Interesting. So that's where it okay. might have okay. come from. Okay. Okay. Leftover. Okay. In that era. Yeah, I mean, that, when you try to read about Indian depredations in and around McHenry County, I mean, that, everything that I've seen, they, they were they were few and far between. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean that that some of the settlers didn't didn't want some big guns. So interesting, and that would that would explain it. That would explain why something like that would be, you know lying around in, in, in the 1850s. Good for parties and celebrations. Exactly. Well, they loved to party with that cannon. <laughs> well, and it still was, you know, I mean, exciting at that point to have around, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fired off. And also, you know, I mean, the, we think about the Civil War beginning 61, but you, that thing was simmering for a, l a long time, and those hostilities were simmering for a long time. And, you know, Missouri's not that far away, and that was a big deal, you know. And we had all kinds of stuff happening in Kansas, and so yeah. I, I besides besides partying, I think um, there were probably a lot of folks who felt very strongly about their politics, and and who knows what's going to happen. And you didn't have to go to a lot of trouble to get powder and shot, and Not back then. good to just have a cannon around. I guess just in case something yeah. happened, right? That, that's right. You were that's fortified. Right. Oh, yes, that's right. So we're going to talk about the two stories that that we read okay. in 1885, um, okay. the history of McHenry County. Mm -hmm. And we have the unfortunate story of Orson Bates. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give that to Ms. Bailey here. Oh, do you want me to read it? Yeah. Thursday morning, November 13th, 1856, fatal accident. While the friends of Buchanan in this place were celebrating their success on Monday night last, the cannon used for that purpose from ill management discharged itself prematurely, injuring our fellow citizen, Mr. Orson Bates, so severely as to require the amputation of the right arm above the elbow and the left hand just above the wrist. When the gun went off, Bates was in the act of ramming down and must have received the whole charge upon his arm and hand, which were both shockingly mangled. Besides this, some splinters were lodged in his neck, breast, cheek, and abdomen, and a large piece of flesh was scooped out from his thigh. The surgical operations were promptly performed by Dr. Hamilton. 
assisted by other physicians of the place. He lingered in great pain until Tuesday night when he expires. We are almost attempted to moralize a little upon this melancholy affair, for we believe that without other excitement than political excitement, it need not have occurred. But it is of no use. Whether one arise from the dead or lay down with the dead, there is a certain class in the community who will remain as impressionless as though made of wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's... A, that was a little bit of sass. This is an accident that happened during a celebration among Democrats, as reported by a, a Republican newspaper. And <laughs> They do seem a little skeptical. And yeah, <laughs> And yeah. critical of the, the whole incident. Yeah, yeah. I do believe that, uh, that the editors were right in saying that Without other excitement than political excitement, the accident may well need not have occurred. What what is it they say further? The cannon from ill management to start discharged itself prematurely, and the victim was ramming down the charge when when it happened. So this is going to be a uh, muzzle-loaded field piece. Means you know you're not opening up the breach and inspecting the, the back end of it before you set about doing either the first round or any rounds thereafter. And while it's prudent to clear and swab that bore before you begin operation, it's absolutely critical after the first round is fired because you're supposed to swab it down with a wet sponge after it's fired to prevent any kind of burned wadding or any kind of un, you know, unspent powder or mm-hmm. anything else to go off during the loading process. So my guess is that they, again, like we said, you know, great for parties, that my guess is that that, that barrel was hot, that uh, that there was some, you know, some ember or some material down there, and they put the charge in, and then they put some, I'm sure they were putting some wadding in, and then as Mr. Bates was driving that charge home so that it could be touched off, by you know by a slow match or whatever mm-hmm. they were using at the right time it discharged as he was ramming at home yeah and that means the ramrod was down in the weapon and mm-hmm. that means that he probably had both hands on it and standing right in front of the muzzle and then the rod and everything else came right out at him which would explain why there's so much debris and splinters and all of this stuff that's tearing him it sounds in pretty, a bunch of different places it sounds pretty gruesome it does absolutely yeah. Gruesome. yeah 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 and we looked up a bit on mr bates because he mm-hmm. wanted to see you know yeah. who he was mm-hmm. and besides the fact that he was a democrat which mm-hmm. is what we learned from the article mm-hmm. we we took a little bit of a gander and he was a carpenter yeah that lived in hebron yeah. and he had a wife and a small child when this happened yeah, so how sad it's super sad mm-hmm. yeah. it is pretty sad yeah and the article itself, does it, does it really tell you where in the world it happened at? No. It, I don't think it tells you. I think it just reports that it occurred yeah. with the cannon belonging to Woodstock. That's so you kind of wonder where in the county it actually occurred. Yeah. Well, it does sound like the cannon traveled around a bit because it went to Crystal Lake. No, and this is reported in the 85 history as just general McHenry County history. This reporting here, of course, done you know years later, decades later political campaign of 1856 won McHenry County from the Democrats, and a rousing majority was given for Fremont. So Fremont won the county, but Buchanan won the presidency. Mm -hmm. So it says, the Democrats, on receipt of the news of Buchanan's election, decided to have a celebration and brought out the old Woodstock cannon, 
which figured interesting here, which figured very prominently in many a political celebration in the olden time. It's reasonable to assume that it happened in in Woodstock. I get this strange image of yeah. like this little pocket of Democrats that just yeah. like were in like the middle of the woods just yeah. trying to celebrate yeah. their they, celebration. They, that's right. They told somebody a fable about why they wanted to borrow the cannon. And <laughs> yeah, so they could go out somewhere and yeah, gosh. Yeah. I mean, they didn't get away with it. <laughs> well, no one wanted yeah. to celebrate obviously because Fremont didn't win. So they were yeah. having their own little party out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Yeah. They brought out the old Woodstock cannon. It also seems to suggest that it wasn't too hard to borrow it. To borrow it. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it wasn't. Yeah. Locked down or anything. Just yeah. up. No, like it wasn't in the armory or anything. Obviously, <laughs> no. Like, nope. Just sitting on the lawn. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we want to use it that night. Oh, okay. Well, you will use it some other time. Yeah. Isn't that something? And as you said here, you gave me because I hadn't seen this before. I hadn't either. It was almost serendipitous because we were about this was a week before, and Martha's like, "I found you a." a news article and I was like oh perhaps I'm like let's read it go yeah. ahead and I'm like oh goodness yeah would well, you want to you want to read that because this now this is four years later and remember the the uh you know their political opponents were very critical of, of the Democrats when yes. when this accident happened uh what happens four years later Celebration at Woodstock on Friday last the jubilant feeling of the Republicans being ir repressible was determined that the town should be illuminated in the evening and that a salute should be fired accordingly at dusk the sentinel office and numbers of other offices and places of business were brilliantly illuminated a huge bonfire was made near the jefferson jackson douglas hickory pole around which gathered crowds of enthusiastic and triumphant big and little rail splitters who shouted and hurrahed till near midnight the big gun, which we hereby dub the Lincoln Hoo-Ha, was brought out, and being rammed with willing hands was made to talk as it never talked before, as the shattered glass in the neighborhood attests. The gun was distinctly heard at Marengo, Union, Shemong, and other towns, and was good music to the ears of the gallant Republicans thereof. The wide awakes would have turned out but for the distressing condition of the streets, it having rained all day. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Sounds like they were celebrating for quite a while with oh, it. Oh, yeah. Hard yeah. and hard. <laughs> yeah. And you could hear it all over the county, or at least the western part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. I guess everybody used it when when they had something big to celebrate. How yeah. long have they had this cannon? That it's, yes. And that yeah. brings up the questions again of its origin. Like, how long has this thing been sitting around where they can just, you know, it's time to get the cannon. We're well, having a what, party. What, 1830, 1832-ish? Yeah. Right around in there? Yeah. Yeah. If, they, if, if that theory is, is correct, right. so that would be right about time. the time you'd have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it it looks like it you know is probably uh, used often and and used by folks who you know are not necessarily practicing the best you know the best military <laughs> cannon usage methods and 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 ma- who knows about maintenance yeah well it sounds like it, they did it at night so you know mm-hmm. limited visibility right? yeah yeah <laughs> so I was interested for a long time after I found out about the cannon to find out how it what happened to it. Mm-hmm. I had theories, as everyone 
Tostitas. I'm like, oh, maybe it must have been melted down with mm-hmm. the rest of them back mm-hmm. in the day. It could have, mm-hmm. it could have. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, um, in our last story here about Michael Dwyer, yeah. when, it wasn't until I read the article that I found out, well, that's what happened to the cannon. It's, it's quite a tragic tale to begin with. And for none of you who probably read this, or obviously none of you have, but the three of us here sitting at the table have read the story. Michael Dwyer was a young boy who was out swimming swimming mm-hmm. in Crystal Lake, and he drowned. Mm-hmm. And they decided they were going to bring out the cannon to raise his body. Now, I wasn't familiar with the practice. It seemed, so, it seemed very odd to, for me to begin mm-hmm. with that they would drag a cannon out to the side of the lake. To try to call a boy up out of the bottom of the lake. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, that, as it turns out, was a popular method of trying to raise bodies of people who had drowned or just bodies that were not floating, you know, if you thought maybe someone had, had been murdered um, in some instances, you know, you, you, and you had a vague idea of where that would be. There were two different things that you find in, you know, as, as folk practices in the 19th century, both in, in the U.S. and in England. And one has to do with trying to figure out where the body might be, and the other, the use of the cannon, has to do with, with raising it up, if you can get it up from, you know, these situations are you either have moving water, if, it, if it's a river or whatever, and stuff moves and you don't know where it is, and it's very hard to negotiate down there. It's before the invention of all the stuff we take for granted in terms of search and rescue, and, you know, aqua lungs and everything, but, you know, maybe snorkels and, and and weights and so and you're generally like in, in Crystal Lake something like this that you know there's not a lot of water movement there um, it is kind of unusual in that it's not fed by a major stream and nor does nor does it let out into one mm-hmm. and so that water is is fed by streams and local runoff and but it's there so it's going to be murky and it's going to be mucky on the bottom and you don't just dive down there and find things uh, the visibility is poor and what they would do is fire cannon thinking that that will somehow either the concussion will, will bring it up or bring the bus shake the body loose or there are a lot of different theories about that to find it in the first place um, and I've, I've found this in a number of places they would float bread on the water and if you the, the theory was that if you found, if you put some mercury, liquid mercury, on it, well, you know, another name for liquid mercury is, is quicksilver. And so you also had uh, apparent religious influences there when you talk about bread and bread being life. And, and it's quicksilver. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it moves. It's alive. Mm-hmm. And so they, a lot of people genuinely believed that if you put some mercury on the bread and you put the bread in the water that that whole thing would find its way to the corpse and would kind of float above the corpse and then that is where you would conduct your search or focus your search Hmm. maybe with cannon maybe maybe not but it seems kind of strange but that stuff was very much in in you know in the popular mind and it was very popular but it appeared often in popular literature Hmm. and some of the first things that you might think of would be references from Mark Twain, uh, who bases this stuff on his own childhood. He is said to have been fished out of the Mississippi River eight or nine times by, you know, that's that's reported by different biographers. Um, And he claims to have, in, in later years, to have actually had cannon fired in search of him 
when they thought that he had drowned, but that uh, his mother would never seem to be too worried about such things because uh, she said, if someone is meant to be hung, he's not going to drown. <laughs> well, but it shows up that this practice of firing cannon to try to raise dead children turns up both in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Unfortunately, both of those things were published after this incident happened. But another very, very popular author of the time, of course, was Edgar Allan Poe. And he, has, he wrote a, um, uh, a short story, which was a follow-up to The Murders in the Rue Morgue, um, where he has his own detective, who is a, a master of logical analysis, and based on an actual uh, mysterious death in New York. And he wrote the story and had it published very quickly to, you know, to kind of capitalize on that because it was a very well-known crime. The victim in the Poe story is one Marie Roger, and the story is entitled The Mystery of Marie Roger, and she is found floating in the waters of the Seine, but there's some question about how long she would have been in the water, you know, why she was found, where she was, and of course uh, the whole point of this is for his, you know, his master detective to solve the crime. But this is published in... 1842, you know, well ahead of our local stories here. Mm -hmm. And Poe spends, well, in this edition here that I have in my hand here, he spends the better part of four pages discussing how and why bodies float or don't and when the decay and, you know, the putrefaction occurs to the point where the, the the body, you know, blows up and becomes buoyant or doesn't, and he, he just spends all kinds of time, or his detective does, Dupin, uh, spends all kinds of time explaining this to his associate, who is the narrator, who is, you know, writing it down for the reader, um, and so this is, like, my point is simply that this is something that was not at all uncommon, and even if you didn't have a local canon, mm -hmm. I think people generally believe that that's a, that would be something you ought to try to do. If you know somebody's down there somewhere and they haven't come up and you can't go down and get them. Um, so there really is a lot of that, I guess, going on. Well, in the Mark Twain stories, it sounded like the kids were missing, though. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like maybe they would have used the canon both if the people were missing and... If they were aware they had already drowned? Yeah, maybe. I, I, I don't know. In, in the case of, uh, it's either Tom or Huck, the main character goes to a lot of trouble. I think it's Huck when he, when he is trying to help Jim escape. I think what he does is he fakes his own death, and he kills a pig, and he puts blood everywhere. I don't know, down by the river somewhere. So I think the idea was that... He was successful in convincing the people of, of town that he'd been murdered and, and thrown into the river. Oh, okay. But Twain says, when he you know does this these kind of reminiscences later on, or his own you know very dramatic tales of his own youth, that uh, the people of Hannibal drug out a cannon for him at least once. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. The article itself was published on Wednesday, seventeenth. 1864, which if you look in the um, 1885 histories, it gives a different date, different year. Yes. For when this yes. was. <laughs> <laughs> which for me, when I went downstairs, I went la la to the microfilm machine, like, I can't find it. What in the world are they talking about? And then Martha Hansen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
went down and found it for me. The inimitable. <laughs> it was bound to happen. She yeah. had it. She had yeah. it fine. It's quite the long article because of so much misfortune. So on Sunday morning last, a party of men and boys at this place chartered a hand car and started down to Crystal Lake crossings, where they walked to Crystal Lake for the purpose of enjoying a bath. It appears that none of the party were swimmers. That two of the boys got on a board and ventured out from the shore. One of the boys, afraid that he was getting out of his death, started back, and his companion, Michael Dwyer, a boy 17 years of age, lost hold of the board and sunk, the water being at least 15 feet deep. Efforts were made to save him by his companions, but without success. As if to prove the truth of the old adage, misfortunes never come singly, another fatality occurred on Monday morning, the efforts made to recover the body. The cannon belonging here was taken down to Crystal Lake and fired for the purpose of aiding in bringing the body of the lost boy to the surface. The second time the cannon was fired, it exploded with terrific force, injuring a man named Manger of this place and a boy whose name we did not learn. A piece of the cannon also struck Mr. J. Dwyer, father of the drowned boy, on the left side of the head, tearing out his eye and breaking in his skull and cheekbone. He appeared to be quite dead, but subsequently revived a little, though consciousness had not yet returned, and his recovery is deemed hopeless. It appears that the cannon was charged with an extraordinary heavy load, and was planted against the bank with no room for recoil. These two facts caused a fatal explosion. On Sunday morning, a family circle was complete, consisting of the father, mother, three brothers, and three sisters. On Monday morning, the father was stretched, bleeding and almost lifeless on the sod, and a son lay dead beneath the water. Mournful is that household now. P.S. Yesterday morning, the body of the boy floated to the surface of the water, was brought out, and carried to this place for internment. The father was still living yesterday morning, and some hopes are entertained that he may ultimately recover, though frightfully mutilated, his left eye and cheekbone being entirely destroyed. The coroner, Dr. P. W. Murphy, held an inquest on the body of Michael Dwyer at Crystal Lake yesterday afternoon. The, the jury returned a verdict of accidental drowning. So we do know from research that um, his father did not die. He lived at least for four more years hmm. after okay. that. Okay. Apparently, if you look on through some weird way of Google and Ancestry combined together, that was his one claim to fame. Okay. <laughs> Is that, that he lived. That he, that he survived. Lived. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that he lived. Wow. I do believe the family did move, though, after that. Did you send me a link to find a grave? I did or? send you a link yeah. to find a grave. It's I couldn't find it again today. I did right. from when I did find it yeah. via find a grave. Mm-hmm. It the was first time, it, I didn't pay any attention to, to the interment date of the father. Yep. But they're both in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, many of the family, I guess, are, are buried in Hartland. Buried in Hartland, yeah. 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 He must have been in great pain after that i mean oh gosh sounds like a horrific accident to recover from gosh well what a sad tale i'm going to guess that if this is if this is a canon that the local people petitioned the government for years before and it was my guess is that it probably was uh cast iron bronze generally i think is is considered superior for those kinds of cannon or at least was in the 19th century but cast iron is you know certainly serviceable very very serviceable the problems are uh, corrosion and another another downside to a cast iron cannon is that it will tend if it fails it will fail by often fail by fracturing and you don't see it coming. It doesn't show a lot of evidence of that it's approaching a catastrophic failure before it happens. So even experienced gunners might not see it coming, although hopefully they would take better care of, of the weapon and keep it clean and, and load it properly. 
and so here in this report we see that it was given too much a char of a charge. Perhaps by desperation. Well, yeah, sure. Maybe we just need maybe if we just need a louder bang. Or again, this is this is both of these stories are examples of people who were probably not well experienced in the use of the thing, who were under very emotional circumstance operating under very emotional circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very different, certainly. I mean, you know, celebrating of a political event is one thing. Trying to raise a, a drowned child is another. Mm -hmm. But even if he wasn't on the gun crew, the boy's father was there. And it has to have been a very, very, you know, everybody wound up in, in just a dreadful set of circumstances. So I can see how you could put too much of a charge in the gun. And then they also note here in the Sentinel that that it was the gun was was planted against a bank with no room for recoil. And while there are a lot of contemporary artillery pieces, well, like, like the big Civil War mortars, for mm -hmm. example, yeah. that, I mean, they're, they're intended to fire on a, a very high, not a flat trajectory, but very, very elevated. And so they, you know, they're pounding all of that recoil force down in into the ground. Well, these smaller field pieces, and even, you know, Eight-pound guns, twelve-pound guns were most often used for support of artillery or cavalry. They're meant to be used on a much flatter trajectory. Oh. Okay, so the whole barrel is lowered. You have more horizontal movement, both the movement of the round as it comes out of the muzzle, but the recoil effect on the weapon is that it pushes it back. And so when you look at the gun carriages on on a lot of these kind of guns you find that instead of having the back of the gun anchored to the ground or you know with with a base plate like a like a contemporary mortar um my father was a mortar man in the several second world war that you know that's that's a weapon that will drive itself right into the ground if it doesn't have a big base but these guns you might sacrifice the additional uh, velocity that you would get by recoil by allowing the piece to be very mobile very portable um to be used against targets that maybe aren't so far away or that are, you know, moving. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be able to rinse and repeat, right? You need to be able to get a, a better rate of fire. And you allow the weapon to follow the basic laws of physics and dissipate some of that force by allowing the weapon to move in an equal and opposite re you know, mm -hmm. reaction to the explosion away from, from the target. And so much so that if you if you look at the gun carriages on these, then you can you can go out by the police station yeah. and look at the little mountain howitzer out there. The trail of that carriage, you know, that has the hitch on it, where mm -hmm. whereby normally you would tow it around, that is just the end of the wooden stock, and it lays down on the ground, and it even has a steel plate on the bottom mm -hmm. to help it move and keep the wood from being chewed up by you know being beaten into the ground or on paving stones or whatever. And so this weapon is meant to be allowed to recoil and move when it's touched off. So if you deny it that, and maybe it's it's a very old weapon that hasn't been kept and maintained mm -hmm. well, and maybe it's a cast iron barrel that has begun to reach the end of its safe you know use, and then you overcharge it with powder, you can see why the, the gun would explode. They're not at war, mm -mm. and they're not firing 
explosive shells, and they're not firing cannonballs, and they're not firing shot. But you see the same thing in the entertainment business. It's real easy to assume if you're firing blanks that no harm is going to be done, and that just isn't so. Theater stories are full of people setting other things, setting scenery on fire <laughs> with, with, with the flaming oh. wadding that comes out of a blank, mm -hmm. or you get powder burns. Yeah, you can see why something like this could go horribly wrong. And that was the end of the canon. And I'm not sure what happened to the parts or the pieces after that, if they recovered them and they were used for some other cursed item in yeah. town. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? And maybe someone out there who is listening might know. Take a metal detector out to Crystal Lake and <laughs> see, see what you find. Well, I'd like to thank you, Mark, for coming to talk yes. to us about thank this. You. Yeah, this thank canon. you so much for coming out and for coming out and talking to us about the canon. And letting right. us quiz you. Maybe yeah, something exactly. a little more, a little more cheerful, cheerful and upbeat. <laughs> next time, next yes, time. next yeah. time. Yeah, next time. Thank you. Yeah, thank been, you. This has been fun. Yeah.